John chapter 11, and we're starting there in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus are brothers and sisters, and Lazarus is sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And so Jesus, he decided to tarry a little bit and stay two days where he was after he got this news. And then it was later that Jesus finally said, let's go to Judea. And in verse 11, he goes off and um, he tells the disciples what he's planning to do in Judea. And he says, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And so he says to the disciples, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. This chapter is about the resurrection of Lazarus, probably the greatest miracle that Jesus does on the planet earth. Lazarus dies, and he's been dead four days, and now Jesus goes off, and he is about to resurrect him from death. He's about to snatch him back from the hands of the devil and bring him back to life. And this chapter actually is divided into two sections. The first, you can already guess, is about Lazarus, his death, and his resurrection. And the second part of the chapter is immediately after this, the chief priests and the Pharisees come together and finally decide once and for all to put Jesus to death. The greatest miracle, the greatest evidence that Jesus gives to this earth that He is the Son of God. He is not just any normal human being. The greatest evidence that He can give to the world is finally the very act that is the final nail in the coffin for Jesus. It is in this final act that finally the Pharisees decide to say, we cannot live, let Him live any longer. But coming back to the story, I want us to come back to John chapter 11 there. And Jesus, He's making His way to the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Martha gets word of it and she goes out of the house and come down with me to verse 21. As Jesus is coming, Martha approaches her and says this to Jesus. She said, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In essence, what is she doing? She's calling out to Christ from the depths of her sorrow. And she says, Christ, if only you had been here, everything would have been okay. In some sense, blaming Christ for his absence as well. You have to read between the lines. She's saying, Jesus, where were you when we needed you most? Isn't that what we cry sometimes to the Lord? Lord, in my darkest time, where were you? Or, or why didn't you help me? Or why didn't you save me from this when you knew what I was going through? When I was praying, when I was walking with you, when I was being faithful in church, when I was serving in church, God, where were you? 
how come you were not there for me? But she continues, she doesn't stop there, you see. And this is where many of us fail to understand the guiding of God and His hand in our lives. But she says in verse 22, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She had not lost her faith in Jesus. She had not lost the fact that even though he was late, even though he didn't help, even though he did not come to the rescue when she needed him most, she still trusted in him. And friends, that's what I want to remind you first this morning, that even though you're going through the most difficult of situations and times in your life, don't let go of what you know to be right. Don't let go of God. Even those even though things did not come out the way you intended it for it to be, even though your life was not the way you wanted it to be and how you planned it, even though it seemed like life took a turn for the worse, don't let go. In the depth of your sorrow, yes, cry out to God and say, God, where were you? But then remind yourself, even though you were not there, you know what is best. And so in verse 24, Jesus says to her, Thy brother shall rise again. And she said, I know that she shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He tries to strengthen her faith again. And she says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And so it seems almost as if now she's encountered Jesus again and she sees him. She has peace in her heart and, and she runs off and, and calls her sister who has no idea that Jesus has arrived. And, and the funny thing is when we jump down to, to a few verses later, Mary says the same thing. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she quickly arose and came to him. Now Jesus was not yet come to the town, but he was in the place where Martha met him. And then verse 32, then when Mary was come where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. These sisters, they had the same thought. They knew that Jesus could help. They knew that if only he had been there, all would have been okay. Once again, saying, God, where were you when we needed you the most? Friends, I think most of us have lived long enough to experience death in our life of immediate family members or those that are close to us. But I want to remind you, no matter what you've gone through or no matter what you're going through or no matter what you continue to go through, God is right there. You've got to remember, He's too wise to make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. We do. In His infinite wisdom, we see few days, few hours in front of us. But He has the beginning to the end stretched out before Him. 
And when He allows something to touch your life, He's touched with the same infirmities. When you go through sorrow, He's right there with you. And even when He allows it, He knows that it is best for you. And then maybe you're sitting here this morning and go, how can you tell me that losing my mother or my father at a young age was the best for me? How could you tell me that what I went through gave me the best life? But we don't understand that. Sometimes the things that we go through, God is not doing it so that you can have the most comfortable life, but that you can have the best environment for character building. And so friends, don't ever look at other people's lives and go, I wish I had that, or I wish I had that. The grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? But all things work together for good. All things always do. If we trust Him and we learn to hold on to Him. Jesus was four days late, yet He was still on time. He was late according to human standards. But to His own timing, that was the perfect time. Why? He was late on purpose, but as a result, the world witnessed the greatest miracle that man could ever witness. A man's body does not begin to decompose until after three days later. Do you know that Jesus had resurrected people from the dead before? There was an instance Jesus was walking out of Jerusalem and he saw a funeral train passing by. The boy had just died and guess what? Jesus resurrected him. There was another instance that this young girl of 12 years old had just died and the parents were crying and he put everyone out, only the parents were there and Peter, John and James were allowed to witness this. But he told the whole crowd, the girl is not dead, she's just sleeping. But she really was dead and they laughed at him. But these people had been dead only for a few minutes, a few hours, never had a man been dead for four days and resurrected back to life? When we see resurrections throughout Scripture, that is the case. This is the first time a person had been lying there and you touch him. You don't, doesn't matter what religion you're from, you had come and investigated him, you could have pronounced him dead, well and truly dead. But it was after four days that Jesus comes. Why? Because three days, it's still possible, it seems. The body has not decomposed yet. That's why Jesus was only allowed to be dead for three days and not four. That's why He had to resurrect on the third day. Otherwise, His body would not have been in the perfect condition anymore. But Lazarus, He was dead four days. Yet Jesus was still on time. Friends, we learn a very important lesson from this. We have to remember that God doesn't live according to man's time. He created the sun, moon, and stars at creation because of us. He doesn't go by days or hours or minutes or weeks or years. Maybe even some of you are praying this 40 days of prayer and you're praying a prayer request for someone that you've been praying for for years. Rest assured, God hears your prayer. You've got to trust that. And He will answer in His time. 
Only do not let go of your faith. Anyways, coming back to the story in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha take him to the gravesite. He asks, where have you laid him in verse 34? And so they bring him there and, and, and many people think, hey, Jesus wants to see Lazarus again. And then we come across a verse that is what we know to be the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter 11 and verse 35. It is simply, Jesus wept. People standing there, they thought, oh my, Jesus really loved Lazarus. But, you know, what's really interesting is that there's only two times in recorded Scripture where Jesus wept. This is one of them. This really is the first. I want you to come with me to the other story found in Luke chapter 19. Let's go over to Luke chapter 19. And this is the only other time that we find where in the Bible Jesus actually shed tears. And this really is the main point of my message this morning as to why Jesus weeps. And no, actually, it was not for Lazarus. But Luke 19 was the other story. I want us to come there. Luke 19, and in verse 29, Jesus gets onto a donkey, and He rides into Jerusalem, and people think that He's going to finally become king. He's going to take the throne, and so they're, they're rejoicing, and they're shouting hallelujah. They're laying down their clothes. They're waving palm branches, which is an emblem of victory. And they're rejoicing. And at the end of it, at the top of the hill, Jesus stops. And I want us to read there in verse 41. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. He stops at the top of the hill that overlooks Jerusalem. And when he was come near and beheld the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at the least this day, the things which belong unto thy peace but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and come past thee round about, and keep thee on every side. Jesus was weeping for the city of Jerusalem and the people which would one day be rejected and destroyed. These are the only two times that the Scripture records where Jesus weeps. And I want us to take a little journey through the writing is well on white. I want to show you, of course, some of this is obvious, but the applications that Jesus makes. And I want to ask you this one question this morning. Is Jesus weeping for me? But Jesus was not weeping for Lazarus. Do you know that? Why? It was not only because of His human sympathy with Mary and Martha that Jesus wept, in his tears, there was a sorrow as high above human sorrow as the heavens are higher than the earth. Christ did not weep for Lazarus. Why? For he was about to call him from the grave. Jesus was about to resurrect Lazarus. He wasn't crying for him in John chapter 11. Do you know that? He was about to resurrect him. He wept because many of those now mourning for Lazarus would soon plan the death of Him who was the resurrection and the life. 
I told you, right after this, at the end of John 11, I'm not going to read it for you. You can go back and read it. But at the end, the priests and the Pharisees who witness Christ calling Lazarus from the grave, they go off and do the very thing that is going to seal his fate as our Redeemer. They plot to kill him. How does that relate to us today? Jesus weeps for those who play church politics. Jesus weeps for those who come to church and can sit here and listen to a sermon and yet go back and plan very contrary to what they had just heard. While evidence shows and proof is that the Scripture is true and we can trust it and Jesus is coming very soon, how Scripture is as clear as a noonday sun on the Sabbath, there are those that will go and hear it and listen to it and read it and they will go do opposite to it. Jesus weeps for us. But why else did Jesus weep? His grief was not alone because of the scene before him. The weight of the grief of ages was upon his soul. And looking down the years that were to come, he saw the suffering and sorrow, tears and death that were to be the lot of men. His heart was pierced with the pain of the human family of all ages and in all lands. The woes of the sinful race were heavy on his soul and the fountain of his tears was broken up as he longed to relieve all their distress. You know, Jesus wept because he looks upon us and he weeps with human sympathy about the situations that we have to face in life. He was probably weeping because he had to resurrect Lazarus. Lazarus would have to die for a second time. Lazarus, who was now at peace with the Lord and his life, he would have to call back and die for a second time. He sympathizes with the pain that we go through. He sympathizes with what you're going through even now. Don't think for a moment that even though you can't feel God or He's not answered your prayers, that He does not weep up there in heaven. Or even He weeps right now. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, His tears were for those who abuse present privileges. He wept that so many that profess His name fail to become what God designed them to be. He weeps because they continue in sin and weakness while He is willing to, and able to save them if they will but come to Him. You know, Christ weeps for us not only because of the sorrow of the situation that we're in, but He weeps because He sees how we live contrary to our high profession. He weeps because we know the truth and we don't do it. He weeps because we abuse those present privileges as God's chosen people of God, and yet we don't take full advantage of the blessings He has in store for us. He weeps. Friends, does God weep for me? Does He weep for you? Is He crying this morning because He knows that you can be better? That you can claim His grace and assurance and live a life fully in Christ and through Him? Is He weeping for you and me this morning? The third reason that I want to share with you 
taken from Pen of Inspiration once more, the spirit of Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, was stirred when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. How was it that Jesus wept over Jerusalem? It was when he drew near and beheld the city. When he saw the condition of the people there, he began to weep, just as Paul did when he saw all the idolatrous nations and how they were living. There is work for everyone to do who has named the name of Christ. That's you and me this morning. Will he do it? If we would be duly impressed with the value of souls, we must oft look to Calvary and see the dying Son of the infinite God giving up His life for a lost world. We must look and contemplate how He estimated man. We must be imbued with His Spirit. The sight of our eyes, a contemplation of the mind, will certainly affect the soul and set in operation practical effort to what? Save the perishing. Thus the missionary work will be placed upon its proper basis. You know why does God weep? Because He sees God's chosen people get caught up with worldliness. And they have no passion for souls. They have no desire to see Jesus come. They have, in fact, looked upon the world and joined it in its sport and revelry. Jesus weeps because God's peculiar people are no longer peculiar. He weeps because not only have we lost our distinctiveness, but we've lost our passion for souls as well. And so, friends, how can we keep this missionary spirit before us? Well, he's got a, he's got a suggestion. She has a suggestion for families. How can we train our children to be missionary-minded so that when they grow older, they can have the Spirit of Christ. Look at this. It's very interesting. In every family, especially where there are children, there is a want of deeper piety of sanctifying grace of Christ brought into the home. Missionary endeavor should consist more than in, in what? Imparting than what? Receiving. So if you want to be a missionary, the, the, the mindset, the basis of it, you should give more than you receive. Okay? Now look at this. The question is, are not home duties, missionary work, neglected? What is missionary work, friends? Home duties. Yes, were the love and fear of God circulating through every household, the in children and youth instructed as they should be, the conversation of an educational character that they should feel their accountability to use their intellect and hearts to do the work assigned them of God, the children would cooperate with their parents in dedication of their time and talents to the service of God. What is the service of God, friends? It is cleaning the toilet. Did you catch that? It's called washing the dishes. It's called, called collecting the clothes from the washing line. Not the parents. Who? Children. Now let's, let's apply to all ages. Young people. What is missionary work? It's called keeping your room clean. Amen. You know why you don't keep it clean? It's because you're too lazy to clean it. 
Why are you too lazy to clean? It's because you're doing stuff that you can receive and not give. Missionary work is best trained first in your room and in your home, learning to give. Some of you live with other people and you tell yourself, I'm not going to clean it because they made it dirty. That's me. It's receiving. But if you're a missionary in your apartment where you stay with other people that are not of the same faith, you will keep it clean because it's missionary work. Amen? When you have to scrub the toilet even though you didn't make it dirty. Or you're not the only person making it dirty. That's missionary mentality. Do you see that? So friends, parents, let's start there. Don't spoil your children by getting it made full-time. Amen? When you get them to clean, that's not child abuse. That's called missionary training. Do you understand that? And so, young people, when you have that tendency of keeping things clean, you got to go back and thank your mother. Say, Mom, thank you for training me to be a missionary. I'm not kidding. This is what Ellen White talks about being the most effective way to train people up to be missionaries. Young people, when you clean at the back there, you are being a missionary. You didn't have money to give for offering. You weren't able to cook. Praise the Lord, you can clean. Amen? Don't look, at, don't look down upon it. It becomes a blessing. It's more blessed to give than receive. But now you understand why. It's because through that, God is training you to be a missionary. And so friends, I want us to ask ourselves, just, just pause here for a moment and to think. What did you do to give this week? When you worked, that's not giving. You know why? You're going to get paid. Really, that's still about me. What have we done in this past week to give? That's out of your responsibility for personal advancement. And whether that is through school or through work, whatever it is, what have you done to give? For that, my friends, is a missionary spirit. And Jesus weeps when He sees our rooms unclean. Do you understand that? Jesus weeps when He sees that you can't be bothered to help in the house chores at all. He weeps. Why? Because He knows that this sort of practical education is the very thing that helps us to get involved in the service of God. Giving with no thought of any return whatsoever. When you're willing to help your friends with their schoolwork, when you're willing to help somebody just for the sake of helping, not because you need their help back in return. This is a sort of service that God looks for. And so friends, we got to start where? In the home, in your room, in your bathroom for some of you. In this kind of education and labor, the expenditure would not exceed the receipts. 
You understand that? Christian activity and growth of personal piety will be symmetrical and proportionate. Those who are most actively employed in doing with interested fidelity their work to win souls to Jesus Christ are the best developed in spirituality and devotion. And so now we come over to that spiritual side in actually having a burden for souls. You know, there's only so much you can grow by just sitting there and listening. There's only so much you can grow by sitting there and just receiving. Once you have that burden for interested labor, for souls that need your help, it begins to change your spiritual life as well. So now you go from the home, now to the community. Now from your personal life to being interested in those around you. It is not the work of the pastor to do it. It is the work of the pastor to get you involved in it and motivated to do it. Friends, I hope that Jesus is not weeping for us this morning. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of the guilt and obstinacy of His chosen people. He weeps also over the hard-heartedness of those who, professing to be co-workers with Him, are content to do little or nothing. Friends, that is talking about the minister, the pastor. Yes, there are people that are involved in full-time ministry who also have to be held to a high standard as well. Jesus wept over obdurate Jerusalem, who are, so, who are so moved by the terrible loss of souls that they even have a faint appreciation of the anguish of Christ's soul. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, and Paul were partakers with Christ in His depths of compassion as far as their human perception could take in the situation. You know, in this 40 days of prayer, I've realized one thing. We don't pray for even our family members as much as we should. You and I, as we've been praying together, we pray, God, forgive us for not praying for our family as much as we need to. I believe that Jesus is even weeping over me. There are millions of people there to be saved. But there are many people I know within our sphere of influence who are close to us. Our brothers, our sisters, maybe even our mom and dad who has not accepted Christ, or our spouses who have fallen away. We've got to learn to intercede for them. And 40 days of prayer, it keeps those names before me every single day. Five people. And I've realized, Lord, I, sometimes I skip praying for my family. I miss them. I've realized that I haven't had the heart and mind of Christ. But Jesus wept for these people, and so did these great men of old in the Old Testament, and even in the New. But they had a passion for the lost, for saving those that were out of the church, for those that had rejected Christ, for those that had left Christ. He prayed for them. I believe Jesus prayed for Nicodemus for those three years that he was on earth in his ministry. And even then, he did not get to see the fruit of his prayers until later. Friends, 
Maybe you've been praying for your loved one for so long and you might not get to see the fruit of those prayers, but you might see them in heaven. You never know how far-reaching those prayers go. You never know how far-reaching that, that passion that you have for these people and what you do and what you say to them, even just a simple text for those that you love that are out of the faith. You never know the impact that it might make on them in the future. A future that might even be closed to your eyes. Work is what the churches need. What is it? Work, not more sermons, not more Bible studies, not more Bible workers, not a bigger church, not a better church. Work is what the church needs. They need an unreserved consecration to service. Jesus wept over the obduracy of Jerusalem, whose hearts break today because of the peril of those in darkness. Who among those that have received such great light and such rich gifts mingle with tears, their tears, the tears of their Redeemer? Friends, for those that have been in the faith for so long, for those that have been on this journey with me since the, the time I came back to Dak and Sack, how deep has your your heart and your passion for the lost grown? Or have you gone backwards in your love for those that are lost? God calls for workers. Personal activity is needed, but what? Conversion must come first. Seeking for the salvation of others next. And so I understand it, friends. I understand why we have no general desire to go out and seek and save the lost. It's not because we can't. It's because we don't have a passion. You know the tools for evangelism, the tools for witnessing, they're all at our fingertips today. Do you know that? The tools to be a better public speaker is at our fingertips. The tools to be able to find a sermon to preach on a Sabbath to be a blessing to the whole church, they're all at our fingertips. You know what that tool is? It's called Google. If you wanted to be a better video editor, if you wanted to be a better piano player, if you wanted to know how to do something, the, the tools are all at our disposal today. What we lack is the passion. What we lack is conversion. Spiritual despotism is to lose its hold on souls. Each one is to awake to the necessity of having personal holiness and a personal living faith. Then will God's work be done. Then will reformations take place. Souls will be rescued from the grasp of selfishness and in love, patience, and Christian forbearance will help one another to work for those perishing out of Christ. Friends, what we need more today is this. It's called personal holiness and personal living faith. We are not saved in churches. We are not saved in families. You don't need to quote to me how many generations of Adventism you've been. You don't even need to quote to me how many evangelistic series you've been through. You don't need to quote to me how long you've been serving in church office. The only question that matters in our church today is do we have a personal experience 
with Christ? Do we have a personal living faith? If we had that, our church would be alive. If we had that, souls would be taken out of the grasp of Satan and brought into the church. If we had that, reformations would take place in our church and in our personal lives as well. Friends, I want us to come back to the basics. Some of you have been too busy with life. You've forgotten what it means to have a personal and living faith. Somewhere along the way, your faith died. Somewhere along the way, you got too busy. Somewhere along the way, you got too self-confident that the faith you had is enough to get you to the end. And life struck you down unawares. Somewhere along the way, your life changed and you refocused on the wrong thing. Somewhere along the way, the trials came in and it hid your sight from Christ. Friends, today, we got to refocus. We got to focus on the things that are important. We got to put the important things first. We got to put Jesus back in his proper place. And that's the reminder that I want to leave with you. Even on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis, whenever you hear it, friends, because that is all that matters, then will God's work be done. Then will reformations take place. We don't have to worry about the keeping of the Sabbath if we have a living faith. Do you know that? All we need to do is recheck. God, have I been spending time in your word? Have I been walking with you this past week? Whatever you did in the past, it doesn't matter. Are you still walking with Jesus today? Friends, Jesus wept because he longs to work through us. And he's still waiting. The amazing thing, he hasn't said to Gabriel, the angel, go, finish the work that these humans cannot do. I can't trust them anymore. He doesn't say that. Do you know that? He sits there, and how painful it must be. You think it's painful to wait for the second coming of Jesus. Jesus, where are you? You know? But it's painful for Christ to sit there and go, please, Ben, go. Go. He's got his money placed on us. His bet is placed on us. And he's just waiting for us to arise to the occasion. So friends, in this coming week, whilst we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. Whilst we see with our human eyes, we've got to look beyond to what is not seen. Whilst we're going throughout this week, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. But we've got to give Him the permission to say, Lord, you've got to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Maybe all you know is one version of yourself at church, but it can be different. And it's not about how long you stay back to ch in church in the afternoons. It's how you live and walk with Christ throughout the week. As we go into our closing song, it's 
called Have Thine Own Way, Lord. It's a prayer. And I want you to sing it as a prayer in your heart. Tell the Lord, God, I'm willing to allow you to have your way in my life. That means you're willing to put aside your preconceived ideas of what you think is right, of what you think a Christian should be, of how you should live your life. You're going to tell God, Lord, you've got to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Have your way and not my way. Let's stand for closing song, shall we? Have thine own way, Lord. Let that be our prayer as we sing. Father in heaven, Lord, we're standing here before you this morning because we want you to have your way in our lives. We want you to live through us. Not I, but Christ. And Father, sometimes I know we're afraid of making that decision because we're afraid of what's going to happen. But Lord, help us not to look so far into the future, for we sometimes live in fear of things that will never happen. I pray that you'd guide us step by step in this new week. I pray that every day in this coming week, we will recommit our life to you. We will surrender in prayer. We will make you the first and the last and the best of our time that we would allow you to work in us, that we may understand what it means to have a personal holiness and personal living faith. Lord, we want to be part of the closing work. Please, help us to understand that what decisions we're going to be making in this coming week will add to that. And I pray that you'd please help us. Just help us. And do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.